All right, we are making some good progress, I think, in our study, our ongoing study on Christ in the Old Testament. And uh, we're in the third and final segment of that study. We, we looked at all of the Old Testament prophecies of the first coming of Christ. And then we uh, spent a considerable amount of time looking at the personal appearances of Christ in the Old Testament in what theologians call Christophanies. And now we're involved in a study of the symbols of Christ in the Old Testament, which are called um, both types and shadows in the New Testament. Um, elements of the story of redemptive history, primarily, of course, the Lord's dealing with Israel, but elements of that story which, uh, while Christ is not personally present in those things, those things function as symbols that point forward to him. And uh, we're working our way through seven sections of types and symbols. Uh, The first was we looked at Christ in the Old Testament things. And uh, currently we're working through the second um, section of the symbolism of Christ in the Old Testament, which is Christ in the Old Testament structures. This is the fourth and final study of that section. And then um, next Thursday night, uh, I will hopefully be winging my way to Kenya to teach in the pastor's conferences there. And David will be starting here the next section of the study through uh, the book of Esther. And um, for tonight's study, as I said, it's the the fourth and final section. Um, We don't have it uploaded yet in case you happen to look for it. Uh, but it should be uploaded sometime tomorrow. Uh, I would recommend, if you want to get the full continuity of our study, uh, to listen to last week's study. I, I managed, by the grace of God, to jam in a whole truckload of information about what we're doing at this point in the study, is we're looking at the last two of the four great structures in the Old Testament that point forward to Christ. The first two, of course, being the Garden of Eden and the Ark of Noah during the time of the flood. And then the last two being the tabernacle, which was, of course, constructed at the beginning of the wilderness journey of the children of Israel, and uh, then uh, the transition between the tabernacle and the temple. What we did last week is we looked at all of the details of the tabernacle, and I say all of the details we did a, an overview study of all of the details. I left out a few details, not because they're insignificant, but if we were to look at every single symbolic detail in the tabernacle, it would take us, um, it would take us uh, months to accomplish that study. But I, I looked at the big picture of how the, the tabernacle is laid out, how it functions uh, symbolically as a house for the Lord to dwell in in the midst of his people, We looked at how there are three segments to the tabernacle, the outer court, which functions in relationship to us like like our our front yard, Uh, the the outer area that still is defined as our property, but outside of our actual dwelling place. And then the tabernacle proper being a two-room house, a two-room dwelling place, an outer room where it's somewhat public. Uh, the, The Levitical priests only were allowed to enter that outer room it having three key items of furniture, the, um, the lampstand, the table of showbread, and the, um, the, the altar of incense. And I should have mentioned that in the outer court, there were two items of furniture as well, 
which were the altar and the laver. And then finally, the innermost room of the tabernacle containing only a single item of furniture, which was uh, in, in God's most private space in his house is not a bed, but a chair. And that chair uh, pointing forward and upward at the same time to the throne of God in heaven, representing God's throne. And so we looked at all of that and um, everything that we're going to continue in our study to address tonight is really based on what we focused on last week. So if you get a chance, I'd recommend listening to the study if you weren't here to hear it last week with us. Um, so we covered most everything, but there's a couple of, of portions of the tabernacle study that I wasn't able to finish just because I ran short on time. And then uh, for the rest of our study after that tonight, we're going to look at a, a brief comparison then of the tabernacle and the temple and what is similar between the two structures and what changes between the two structures and how that, how that points forward also, both the similarities and the differences to um, Christ and his work in the church. All right, so I mentioned we're going to start in the book of Leviticus chapter 10. And the reason I want to do this is that uh, this, points, this story points to a special uh, portion or a special part of the tabernacle structure, the temple as well. And um, it has to do with really emphasizing why this part of the house of God uh, was designed in the way that it was and functioned in the way that it did. And we're talking about the curtain, the thick curtain that separated the two rooms in the, in the house proper, in the actual um, uh, tabernacle of the Lord and later in the actual temple of the Lord inside the structure, separating the holy place, the outer room, from the innermost room, the Holy of Holies. So this is a story that is identified in our translation here as the death of Nadab and Abihu. These are the two sons of Aaron, just as a quick reminder. And we'll be looking at Aaron in much greater detail later in our study of Old Testament symbols in his function as the first high priest appointed by the Lord. But uh, Nadab and Abihu are Levitical priests. They are sons of Aaron, and they are serving the Lord as Levitical priests in the house of the Lord. But they are not high priests. Only Aaron is a high priest. So uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer. Censers essentially were like a, a fire pan that was uh, held on a, a pole, and then uh, incense was placed within this fire pan, lit on fire, and uh, as a result, there would be this beautiful aroma within the house of the Lord. So Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer, meaning each Levitical priest that was part of the assigned function of incense burning within the house of the Lord had their own assigned censer, so they took their censer, they put fire in it, they laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And as a result, verse 2, fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And, and then this notation, Aaron held his peace. Um, that phrase at the end of verse 3 is meant to catch our heart's attention. 
by way of just asking us to, for a moment, put yourself in the place of Aaron. Um, You know, he was the father to these two young men who were serving the Lord as Levitical priests. And as a result of their actions, their decision and their actions, they ended up dying by the hand of the Lord in the house of the Lord. And you can only imagine how heart-wrenching this experience must have been for Aaron and how natural perspective might have tempted Aaron to speak up with some complaint to the Lord about what has just happened. But Aaron at this point knows better. He knows what has happened. He knows why it's happened. And so he, he holds his peace, meaning that he recognizes it's not his place to complain about what the Lord has done in relationship to his two sons. So the question is, what was so important that the Lord saw fit? And of course, is the question we're meant to ask is, is the Lord, is the Lord justified in his actions in this case or in any other case where the Lord acts in the affairs of men and especially in the affairs of his covenant people, Israel? And the, the answer that we should start with before we even uh, look at the details of any specific story is, of course, the Lord is going to be justified in his actions because he always acts wisely. He always acts according to the principles of righteousness and his own holiness and never crosses boundary lines in a, in, into inappropriate territory. So with that as our starting point, we can read a story like this and, and rather than as some modern, uh, what I would consider to be theologically liberal scholars who have actually read the story and questioned the actions of the Lord in the story, rather than questioning the actions of the Lord, what we're meant to do is assume righteousness on the Lord's part and then ask questions about why did this happen? And if anyone's to be questioned in the story, who's to be questioned? Nadab and Abihu because they're the ones that have crossed some line that the Lord has considered to be so significant, so serious, that um, only a death penalty response from the Lord was deemed by the Lord himself to be appropriate. So what line did they actually cross? In the wording of the story, it's not super clear exactly what happened, other than the fact that they brought their fire pans for lighting incense, they put incense in them. So these fire pans are for the purpose of incense. They're burning incense in their fire pans. Is that a sin? And did they cross a line by burning incense in the pans that were designed for incense burning? The answer is no. There was nothing wrong with them burning incense. It's where and how and the reason behind why they actually did burn the incense. So while this isn't specified in the text, most theologians agree, I certainly agree with them in this conclusion, that what's happened here is that, and we get this detail from verse 2, as they burn the incense and have crossed some line, the response of the Lord is, fire came out from before the Lord. Now where was Of course, in the biggest and greatest sense, the Lord is everywhere present at all times. But you understand that the Lord reveals himself, and we talk very specifically about this in our section on Christophanies, the actual appearances of the Lord in the Old Testament. The Lord is not just, in a general sense, everywhere present. He is 
specifically and specially present in certain locations in redemptive history to make himself known in the specific context of that revelation. So in the context of the tabernacle, the house of the Lord, where was the Lord most present in the tabernacle? Once the tabernacle was completed, as we saw in our study of the last two weeks, once the tabernacle was completed by Moses, we saw in Exodus chapter 40 that the the Shekinah glory cloud, which had been leading the children of Israel through the wilderness and had been on the summit of Mount Sinai, that cloud lifted from the summit of Mount Sinai, descended directly over the completed tabernacle, and the Lord's glory presence filled the tabernacle, signifying in the eyes of the children of Israel that the Lord is now moving into his house, and that tabernacle is in the midst of his camp, and signifying that the Lord is now dwelling in the midst of his people. So as he moves into his house, where is he most present? In his house, the Holy of Holies, and specifically situated directly above the Ark of the Covenant. I won't take us to the passages that describe, I'll just briefly uh, review them for you, is that when the Lord would appear either to Moses or Aaron in order to make himself known in the context of his presence within the house of the Lord, he would do so by, by this pillar of cloud now being localized directly over the Ark of the Covenant. So if fire came out from the presence of the Lord, it came out from where? It came out from the Ark of the Covenant. So what is implied, what's indicated by the description here, is that Nadab and Abihu crossed a very important line that they should never have crossed, and that is the line of passing through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, to stand before the the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of the Lord himself, and they offered incense, and they were not in that circumstance designated or allowed to do so. Why? Who was allowed within the confines of the Holy of Holies? And we, again, talked about this uh, several times before. Only the high priest was allowed in the confines of the Holiest of Holies, And he was only allowed, even the high priest was only allowed there under very specific and certain circumstances. He was allowed to cross the line of that curtain and enter into the most holy place one time a year under the circumstances of the context of the Day of Atonement. So Nadab and Abihu cross this line and the Lord responds in a a most serious way, a death penalty level response Fire comes out from the presence of the Lord and consumes them. They fall dead, and uh, all of Israel learns a very important lesson. What is the lesson that's being taught here? Well, in all of these actions, what we see is that the the story of redemption is at stake. Is at stake. Uh, do you remember from the uh, study that we did? Uh, this is in the first segment. Uh, the study of Old Christ in Old Testament things, and we focused on the um, the incident where the Lord called Moses to uh, take the staff of the Lord that had been given to him, and in the wilderness journey to strike a specific rock, the Lord had said to Moses, "I'm going to stand on the rock. I want you in in the eyes of all of the people. I want you to strike the rock. When you do." 
the rock will split, water will come out, and that will be enough to satisfy the thirst of the entire nation of people. All of that being an image of salvation, an image of redemption, an image of what ultimately, as it points forward in history, what Christ and Christ alone could accomplish. Because he was the one in that symbolic imagery standing upon the rock. So the striking of the rock with the authority of God represented by the staff of God is really a striking of Christ. And as Christ is struck on the cross, the, the opening up of the waters of salvation to pour out and to satisfy the true need of the people of God occurs. And then later in their journeys through the wilderness, there was a second incident where the Lord told Moses, I want you to go back to this same rock, but this time instead of striking it, I want you to speak to it. And the reason why the Lord told him, I don't want you to strike the rock the second time was what? Because it's an image of the cross. It's an image of Christ's crucifixion. So Christ cannot be portrayed symbolically and, and still maintain the true story of redemption. Christ cannot be struck twice on the cross. He died, as Hebrews emphasizes over and over again, he died once for all time fully accomplishing the purposes of salvation. And so Moses crosses a line and he strikes the rock in his frustration with the people, his anger toward the people, and he strikes it twice, ruining God's symbolism of the cross. And again, as we've studied this, what was the Lord's response to Moses in that circumstance when he crosses that line? He says, okay, Moses, so you have... Basically, I'm kind of rewording what the Lord says to him. You've ruined my symbolism of the plan of salvation. So you are going to not be allowed to enter the promised land. You're going to die in the wilderness. And he, because of Moses' years of faithful service, he allows him to, to climb up a mountain and look out past the river Jordan and see the promised land, but he's never allowed to enter the promised land. By the way, all of that, and this is just kind of like a bonus point, all of that is portraying that Moses representing the law could not get the people of God into the promised land. The law was sufficient to bring them out of Egypt, was not sufficient to bring them into the promised land. Only the grace of God, the saving grace of God in Christ can accomplish that. So Joshua, who bears the name Jesus in a Old Testament Hebrew form of the name, is then replacing Moses in order to bring the people in to the promised land. So the reason I bring up that whole story again is that this story is very similar in that God has a very specific purpose in the symbolism that he is intending to be played out in a very specific way. And if lines are crossed and if the symbolism is serious enough, then the Lord will bring about a consequence of such magnitude as to highlight how important that symbolism of the story of salvation really is. And so in this case, I want you to think about it in these terms, because Nadab and Abihu ruined the symbolism of the plan of salvation as it applied to Christ in the tabernacle. God executed them for that specific offense. Now, uh, as a result, what we have here is an emphasis in the whole approach to the Holy of Holies only by the high priest, only on the Day of Atonement 
to emphasize one key principle pointing forward to Christ. Even the negative actions of Nadab and Abihu, just like the negative actions of Moses did this, even the negative actions or the disobedient actions serve the Lord's purpose to highlight one critically important principle in the plan of salvation. That is, only Christ could enter the Holy of Holies, which is an image of heaven. Only Christ could approach the throne of God. Only Christ's sacrifice was sufficient to transform the seat of judgment, which the ark represented to a mercy seat, a seat of grace and mercy, as the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled upon that seat. And so uh, critically important for us to remember uh, that the curtain serves this barrier purpose in the Old Covenant. Uh, let's look at a um, couple of uh, passages real quick, one of which I referred to last week, but I want to re- remind us of it. Uh, Luke chapter 23. So how long did this symbolism of the curtain last? It lasted from the generation of Moses who uh, in the construction of the tabernacle was to erect that curtain separating the two rooms all the way until the day Jesus died on the cross. As this passage in Luke 23 starting verse 44 emphasizes for us. As I said, I, I made mention of this last week. Uh, This is now, we're picking up in the context of Jesus is actually on the cross at this moment in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed this last So what Luke does is he links the death, the moment of the death of Jesus with the actual tearing of the curtain in the temple of God there in Jerusalem. And then one of the other gospel writers uh, emphasizes that the curtain was torn in a very specific way again, which was from the top to the bottom, uh, which symbolically emphasizes that no human being had a role in the curtain being torn. It wasn't the priest getting together and attempting to tear it from the bottom up, but an actual, most likely, angel from heaven assigned to come and tear the curtain from the top down. And why is the curtain torn at the death of Christ? Uh, Let's turn over now to Hebrews uh, 9. I'll read from verse 6. This whole section going all the way back to verse 1 is a section describing from a now new covenant fulfillment perspective the role of various details in the tabernacle. But I'll start in verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. The first section is the outer room, the holy place, performing their ritual duties. But into the second now the holy of holies beyond the curtain. Into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates 
that the way, this is while the two rooms were separated by the curtain, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place, the holy of holies, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So in the Old Testament, it was critically important that the, the symbolic representation of the house of God had these two rooms that were separated by this curtain that must not be crossed except by the high priest. And he could only cross it on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement points forward to the day Christ dies on the cross. When Christ actually died on the cross, the curtain was torn in two by the Lord's own actions from heaven, from top to bottom. Once the curtain was torn, now it's one giant room with no separation between the two. What does that signify for the Levitical priests? It signified that they were now free symbolically to enter into the innermost room. There was no longer a separation. Why is that important for us? You and I are described by the Apostle Peter as a royal priesthood of the new covenant, replacing the Levitical priesthood of the old covenant. We are now the servants in God's house, but we are not restrained in the outer room only, unable to approach the actual presence of the Lord. Because due to the death of Christ on the cross, the curtain has been removed, and so we as a royal priesthood can enter the outer room, but immediately proceed directly to the most important item of furniture in the house of the Lord, which is the Ark of the Covenant, representing the throne of God. And that takes us then back to, turn back to Hebrews 4, a very familiar, I hope a very familiar passage for us. The end of chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us, and that's a reference to his ascension back to heaven, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Conclusion, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of the actions of our heavenly high priest and because of the tearing of the curtain, the way to the throne of God is now open for us and the, the, the ark itself, the throne itself has been transformed for us, not for the world around us, but for us. It's been transformed from a throne of judgment to a throne of mercy, which Paul in another place emphasizes mercy triumphs over judgment, meaning that 
for us, it's a, it's a, it's a celebration as we approach the throne of God of the, the triumph of the, of the Savior, of the Son of God, who has made the way open for us and has created a welcome for us at the throne of God that we could never have achieved on our own. Had we attempted to approach the throne of God apart from Christ's saving sacrifice on the cross, we would have been treated like Nadab and Abihu, but instead we are welcomed into his presence without threat of punishment or judgment like they experienced. All right, let's uh, look at another element. And on this one, we will revisit this eventually in one of our seven segments of, of um, the symbols of Christ in the Old Testament. When we look at, at specific roles that the Lord had assigned to special people throughout the Old Testament as those special roles, the, the three most important ones being the, the prophets of God, the kings of God, and the high priests of God. But there are a, a few other roles as well as those, uh, all of which point forward to Christ. Uh, so we're going to look here for just a moment at the high priest role and some details about the high priest that are very specifically tabernacle and temple oriented. And then we'll, as I said, eventually when we get there, we'll revisit some of these details as well. First, let's look at Exodus 28. So now we're focused on the role of the high priest in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And one of the most important details about the high priest in his, in his service to the Lord in the tabernacle and the temple was that he could not... Let me put it this way. Uh, how many of you work outside of your home? You go somewhere to go to work. I know some of us ended up working at home through the COVID thing, but um, how many of you actually get up, get dressed, and go to work? Okay, when you do, do you wear your most casual clothes to your office place, usually? I would hope not. <laughs> your most casual clothes? I mean, in some cases, I, you know, I can get really casual at home. Uh, and if you showed up at my door, I'd change my clothes before I actually answered the door. That's how casual I can get. Uh, you know, when I, you know, and, and you could tell, I mean, I dress somewhat casually for a pastor, but uh, not nearly as casually as I dress at home. Uh, the high priest never was allowed to, there was no, uh, and some workplaces do this, there was no casual day in the tabernacle. There was no casual dress day in the temple. The high priest was assigned to wear very specific clothing every day that he showed up for work to serve the Lord's purpose in the Lord's house. Uh, let's look at a couple of the details. First, uh, in Exodus 28, let's look at verses 9 through 12. You shall take... These are the Lord's instructions to Moses. You shall take two onyx stones. Onyx is uh, what color? Black. Very, very uh, thick black color. You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Now, of course, the names of the sons of Israel here is not every single individual belonging to the tribes of Israel. What was engraved, as we see in verse 10, are representative names. So there were how many tribes in Israel? Twelve tribes. So one name 
for each one of the 12 tribes, and the name that was engraved was the first head of the tribes of Israel, the defining names of the 12 tribes. So you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel, six of their names on the one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in the order of their birth. As a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the sons of Israel. You shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. So this is a beautiful piece of art. Actually, two pieces of art because one was for one side of the priest garment, high priest garment, one for the other. And then verse 12, where they were situated in his garment. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod. Ephod just is a, a reference to the entire get-up, so to speak, that the high priest wore. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as, and this is their functioning symbolic purpose. It's a more of a symbolic purpose than it is a practical purpose. You shall set them on the ephod, on the shoulders, as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And then this explanatory phrase, and Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So they are called stones of remembrance, but the question we're meant to ask is, who is remember, who's doing the remembering and what is it that's being remembered? So who's doing the remembering in this circumstance? It's the high priest himself. He is the one remembering that every time he approaches the Lord's presence, he's not approaching on his own behalf alone. He's approaching the presence of the Lord on behalf of those whose names he bears on his shoulders. Why are these stones as stones of remembrance placed on the shoulders of the high priest rather than maybe on his belt or like buckles on his shoes? Why on his shoulders? Because our shoulders symbolically are where we bear our weight. It's where we bear burdens. You know, if you go hiking and you're carrying a backpack, the straps are across your shoulders. They're not, you know, they're not across your forearms or across your legs. There's a, a, a burden-bearing aspect of shoulders in the way the Lord has designed us to bear weight and the way he describes the purpose of shoulders in Scripture. And so this wonderful image is being portrayed here because Aaron represents Christ. The idea is that Christ, as he approaches the throne of God, and when he approached the throne of God, it was in the circumstances of the day of atonement in his sacrificial work on the cross, culminating in his resurrection from the dead, and then ultimately even beyond that, culminating in his ascension back to the throne to present to God the Father on the throne the the accomplishment of the plan of salvation, just like the sacrifice that was offered on the day of atonement was made where? Physically, practically, where in relationship to the tabernacle? Where was the sacrifice offered? Not in the house, not in the Holy of Holies. Outside, in the courtyard, it was offered on the altar. 
And then the blood that was gathered from that sacrifice was carried through the house and carried by the high priest beyond the curtain into the holy of holies where then that blood was sprinkled upon that judgment seat to transform it again into the mercy seat. But as he's doing that, he's bearing on his shoulders the names of the children of Israel. And they're functioning as stones of remembrance so that the high priest will never forget that he's doing this not just for himself, he's doing this for the people of God who are the covenant object of God's redeeming love. So it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful portrayal of the burden that Christ carried upon his shoulders. You know, we obviously understand that in the, the circumstances of his sacrificial death, he carried the, the cross beam of the cross upon his shoulders and actually accomplished the plan of salvation and then carried the, the accomplishment of that in his ascension before the actual throne of God but the idea being that your name and my name were upon his shoulders as he arrived before the throne of God in order to signify the work is done, the plan of salvation is fully accomplished. All right, let's look at another detail now of the high priest's garment. Uh, Also in chapter 28, let's jump down to verse 15. This is still describing another item of the clothing that the high priest was to wear. You shall make a breast piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set in it four rows of stones, a row of, and and these are just now a list of 12. So four rows of stones a total of three stones per row, and each one of these is a different special or what we would call precious gemstone. Sardius, topaz, carbuncle in the first row, second row, emerald, sapphire, and diamond, third row, jacinth, agate, and amethyst, in the fourth and final row, a beryl, onyx, and a jasper. They're all set in gold filigree, 12 stones, and in verse 21, we're told the correspondence symbolically. There shall be 12 stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. Now, the idea here is that every time the high priest entered the house of the Lord, he was to first not just have these special stones set on his shoulders as stones of remembrance, but now he was to wear this breastpiece over his garment that covered his, his heart area. And upon that were these 12 precious stones, one stone for each one of the 12 tribes of Israel, each stone precious, but each stone unique, meaning that each one of the tribes held its own value in the eyes of the Lord, had its own purpose given their unique assignment from the Lord but all of them together now functioning as what is called a breastpiece of judgment so that as the high priest enters the house of the Lord, he bears on his heart the judgment that is due to those that are represented by these 12 stones. So 
the, the concept here is that the high priest in all of his daily functioning, and especially even on the Day of Atonement, is uh, signifying that those that he is serving the Lord for are the people of God. And while they have value because they, are, they have their place in the heart of the one that is serving for them, it is a breast piece of judgment signifying that they deserve the judgment of God, but because of the work of the high priest, they receive rather than judgment, they receive mercy as a result of his ministrations. And later in this same passage, toward the end of this section, it will even describe that by wearing this breast piece, the high priest is bearing the judgment of those that those stones represent. This is, of course, the emphasis on Christ on the cross, bearing the judgment that you and I deserved. All right, another detail. Uh, This one, let's jump over to uh, Ezekiel chapter 44. And we'll just look at two verses. It's just one specific detail about the clothing of the high priest. And the question is what the garments that he wore under the shoulder pieces and under the breast piece, what was that garment made out of? What kind of, what kind of um, material was the garment of the high priest to wear? Uh, Ezekiel 44, verse 17 Uh, When they enter, and this is uh, referring to all of the priests, including the high priest, when they enter the gates of the inner court, they shall wear linen garments. They shall have nothing of wool on them while they minister at the gates of the inner court and within. Question is, why, why is the Lord so specific about what to make the garments of the priests that served in his, in his tabernacle and temple out of why was wool not an appropriate garment for their service and linen was the appointed garment? The next verse describes for us the reason. They shall have linen turbans on their head and linen undergarments around their waist. They shall not bind themselves with anything that causes sweat. All right, so the Lord did not want his priests, as they were functioning in his house, to be sweating. Now, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of perspiration that we all understand just living in natural bodies in this world, and that is when people perspire, while there is some health benefit to perspiration, to sweating, um, there's a, a downside that goes with sweat, right? What is the downside? Uh, yeah, you know, well, you lose water for the person that's doing the sweating, but for everyone else around them, uh, the, the yeah, the odor that goes along with this. So God wanted his he wanted his house to always be filled with uh, a beautiful uh, a beautiful scent of the incense that was burning. He doesn't want any human sweat to ruin the atmosphere, so to speak, uh, in his house. But it's not just a, a practical thing. You know, like God saying, I, I just can't stand the smell of human sweat. Um, it's what human sweat signifies. So when is it that you actually sweat, other than it happens to be a really, really hot day? Normally, let's just say it's a cool day. What would cause you to sweat in this world? Work. So 
human effort, human work, is what produces human perspiration or human sweat. What the Lord is signifying by this is that all of the works done in his house are to be works of grace rather than works of human effort. So uh, it's critically important that all of the Levitical priests, but most especially the high priest, are not doing any efforts in their service to the Lord that would be associated with what the, the scripture describes as the efforts of the flesh, which would then be human efforts to establish our own righteousness before God and would then obliterate our, our ability to comprehend that our presence in the house of the Lord and our welcome in the house of the Lord is based entirely upon the grace that flows from the sacrifice that's made outside before we even enter the house of God. We haven't and do not earn our way into the presence of the Lord or into the house of the Lord. Meaning this is a, this is a symbolic argument about against legalism or the idea of somehow we can earn the favor of God by our good works. All right, let's look at uh, one more detail on the, uh, on the priest garment. Uh, back to Exodus 28 for this one. We'll look at verses 36 to 38. This is an interesting detail in the high priest garment. This was unique to the high priest. Um, the the uh, regular Levitical priest uh, did not have this in their garment. So uh, we're looking at uh, Exodus 28, verse 33. Let me get to the right chapter here. Okay. On its hem, now we're talking about the hem of the high priest's garment, which um, is the bottom portion of the robe that he wore near the feet. On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarn around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate. A golden bell and a pomegranate. It's repeated because the idea is this is a a, a recurring pattern all the way around the hem at the bottom of the high priest's robe. Around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers. And its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord. And when he comes out, so that he does not die. All right, so the idea here is an an interesting arrangement where the Lord had sewn into the high priest garment at the hem these yarn balls, which are symbolic even then for appointing to, it's not just when they saw these yarn balls around the bottom of the high priest garment, they weren't just to think, oh, he's got yarn balls at the bottom of his garment. They were to think what? Oh, there's a, there's a representation of a pomegranate. Now, why a pomegranate out of all of the, the fruits of all of the trees that God has created in all of uh, the creation around us? Why would he choose pomegranates? What's unique and interesting about pomegranates compared to other fruit? 
They're literally just crammed full of seeds. That's all a pomegranate is. It's, it, the fruit itself is simply a, a jammed full. It's a ball, which is just jammed full of seeds. Seeds, of course, being representative of the ability to reproduce after its kind, right? So at the bottom of the high priest garment is a, is a representation of seeds that reproduce fruit. The fruit of the high priest's work reproducing something. And we'll focus on that in a moment. In between the pomegranates, though, were golden bells. What is a golden bell for? In this case, it's to make a, a sound, but a particular kind of sound, a beautiful sound. It's, it's to make this wonderful, you know, have you ever seen these Christmas bell choirs? Think of a bell like that, not just a, you know, a, an irritating bell. Think of a, a, just a, a gorgeous bell making this beautiful sound. But the bells never touched other bells. In between each bell was a yarn ball so that when the bell moved in the swishing of the robe of the high priest as he walked through his, his service in the house of the Lord, the bell would hit the yarn fruit. And therefore, if the bell were to hit another bell, what would be the problem with that? Now you have a clanging of bells. It's no longer a beautiful sound. It's kind of an irritating sound. So you have this beautiful sound and you have this representation of fruit. And so those two things, I believe, correspond to the two things that the Lord reproduces in us when he saves us. What are those two things that are reproduced in us? The fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. So the pomegranate corresponds to the fruit of the Spirit, I believe. The, the, the bells, the golden bells, correspond to the gifts of the Spirit. And those two things in this beautiful um, relationship to each other so that um, if you only had gifts, you've got this clanging sound. And if you only have fruit, you would have this beautiful fruit being symbolized, but there would be no, there would be no sharing of that and no hearing of that, no understanding of that because it would be silent. So those two things in right relationship both the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit, as a result of the high priest service now being passed on in the next spiritual generation, which is passed on to his people, uh, reproduced in us. So that when we grow in the fruit of the Spirit as new covenant believers, we're growing in the characteristic likeness of Christ. And when we grow in our exercise of the spiritual gifts, as God assigns different gifts to us, we grow in our ability to to serve the Lord and to share the work of the Lord that has transformed our lives in a redeeming way to others around us. All right, um, another section of details, which I'm going to save completely for a future study, which is the sacrificial system, uh, which took place entirely within the service of the tabernacle and the temple. There were basically five sacrificial types, um, all of which in a different and unique way, point forward to the work of Christ on the cross. The five sacrifices were the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offerings. 
when we get to the section of how Christ is represented in the law, we'll look at these five sacrifices in more detail, and I'll highlight exactly how each one of the five sacrifices points to a different aspect of what was accomplished in the cross. All right, so we've got just enough time now to, to look for a couple of minutes here at, at what is the, the difference then between the tabernacle and the temple. So we've seen that in God's purposes, he eventually moved out of the tabernacle. We saw this in our study last week. And he moved into the temple during the days of Solomon. He replaced one house that belonged to him with a new house that belonged to him. But what are the differences? What's similar between the two structures is the basic layout, which is a three-section house, an outer court, an outer room, and an inner room separated by the curtain. Also what's similar is the priesthood, both the Levitical priesthood and the high priesthood are similar. What's also similar is the sacrificial system is similar. All of the garments of the priests are similar. All of the the accoutrements of the, the service of the two houses are similar. But there are some important differences between tabernacle and temple, and those differences point out some elements of the purposes of God in redemptive history. So what about the location? What's the difference between the location of the tabernacle and the location of the temple? Where was the tabernacle located in the days of the Old Testament? Wherever the people of Israel were located. It started at the foot of Mount Sinai. That was the first location for the tabernacle as Moses received the blueprint on the summit of Mount Sinai, came down and supervised the construction of the tabernacle. And then when it was finished, as I already described earlier, the presence, the Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord moved into the tabernacle. So the first location of the tabernacle was Sinai. But for the duration of their 40-year journey, as they made a circular uh, route through the, the Sinai wilderness, Uh, that location changed from camping spot to camping spot as the tabernacle, every time they moved, was broken down, was packed up, then carried by the Levitical priests to the new location as they followed the the, uh, glory cloud of the Lord throughout the wilderness journey. Then when they even moved into the promised land, crossing the River Jordan, for all of the time period between the days of Joshua as they crossed the River Jordan to the days of Solomon, the the tabernacle of the Lord continued to move from location to location throughout the promised land, never settling in any one final location until it settled in a location that was very close in proximity to what was eventually going to be the building spot for the temple. And then, of course, in the days of Solomon, where was the temple actually located? It was located in the city of Jerusalem. It was the center of the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem was actually built around the temple of God. So what's the difference in location? One is a temporary and movable location, which served the purpose of the Lord when the children of Israel had no permanent home in this world. Then when they settled in the promised land, conquered the promised land and dwelt in it. And then under the leadership of King David, the, the uh, 12 tribes of Israel were fully united. They finished the conquest of the promised land. 
And the Lord then gave him the blueprint for the construction of the temple and his son Solomon, the assignment to finish that work. So the difference between the two structures is the temple is a permanent structure that never moved from the moment it was finished. It was built and it stayed in that one exact spot, never to move again. What does this tell us about the the changing purposes of the Lord? Well, ultimately, these are representations of the Lord's house, showing that in the earliest expression in the tabernacle days, the Lord's house was not permanent because the circumstance spiritually of the children of Israel was uncertain. They were at times serving the Lord and at times they were not serving the Lord. Now in the days of the temple, what the Lord is showing is that he is entering into a more permanent and enduring relationship with his people, a settled dwelling place in the midst of the city of God, which is Jerusalem. Um, What about the differences in the size of the two structures? Interestingly, at least to me, the temple complex was laid out identically to the tabernacle with one big difference. The temple was almost exactly twice the size of the tabernacle in its dimensions. So what would that signify as God's purpose is becoming permanent and enduring in the representation symbolically of the temple? It is doubled in size, which indicates to us that God's redeeming purposes in history are always moving forward and growing. They're not, you know, it was a high point early in history. And ever since then, it's kind of hit a peak and it's just, it's just kind of like uh, coasting downward ever since. The, the growth from tabernacle to temple shows that God's purposes are increasing and becoming magnified and greater in expression of glory and an expression of his redeeming purposes. Um, Of course, what the two structures are made out of are significantly different. The uh, tabernacle was made out of skins, and it was made skins of specific animals, and it was made out of uh, uh, specific materials like, um, uh, uh, yeah, fabric materials. So you have two things. You have metal poles that are the support uh, functionary kind of uh, supporting uh, substructure, and then you have skins and fabric. Uh, What is the temple primarily made out of? It's made out of stones. Um, An interesting detail about the stones of the temple, uh, one single verse, turn over quickly to uh, the book of 1 Kings chapter 6. This is a whole study all by itself, but I'll take just... Just a moment to highlight it and give a brief overview of it. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 7. When the house was built, and this is referring to the temple, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built meaning that uh, the stones that were added to the temple were uh, to be perfectly finished in the quarry, and then they were to be transported from the quarry to the, the construction site of the temple itself. And the, the, the um, archaeologists have 
described that the stones were so perfectly prepared that as one stone was slid into place next to another stone, you could take like a, a common business card that we hand to one another with our information and you could try to slide it in between. And these were gigantic stones, gigantic stones. You could try to slide that business card in between two stones and you would not be able to do it. That's how perfectly finished they were in their fit to one another. Now, what does this have to do with the ultimate thing that the temple is pointing forward to, which is God's work in the church? You and I are described in the book of First Peter chapter 2. I won't have time to take us and read it, but First Peter 2 verses 4 through 8 describes us as the living stones that are the material that God is using to construct his new covenant and eternal dwelling place out of. So we are like the stones of the old covenant being prepared where? Not in the actual temple itself, but we're being prepared in the quarry. The quarry is this world. So God is at work preparing us to be fit as living stones in a permanent role in his eternal dwelling place in the heavens by shaving us and by, by sanding us and getting us exactly the way he wants us before he adds us to the final structure of his eternal temple. Uh, another detail uh, in the, in the uh, tabernacle, how many lampstands were there? There was one single lampstand, the only light source in the tabernacle. Does anybody remember how many lampstands there were in the temple? Remember, the temple is a significantly larger structure, almost double in size. There were 10 lampstands in the temple. What does that indicate? The, the lampstands, remember, correspond to churches in the New Covenant. We're, we've learned that from our, our recent study in the, in the first couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. And churches, as they function as the light bearers of God's message, meaning we represent the truth in this darkened world. So why 10 in the temple and only one in the tabernacle? The, the witness of the truth of the gospel is growing progressively brighter through history. So 10 is symbolically an appropriate amount of light in the temple compared to the tabernacle. And then when we move from the temple to the new covenant temple of the church, we should expect a continuing progression of an even greater and brighter light, not a diminished light. Uh, another detail that was different from the tabernacle, the temple had two pillars that were placed at the front entry door of the temple. The front entry door was much larger. And these two, these two pillars were given names uh, by Solomon under the inspiration of the Lord. The names of the pillars were Jachin and Boaz. Uh, there's, a, there's a purpose in the names as we, we've studied the the way that God uses names to signify principles. Uh, Jacob means he, speaking of the Lord, he will establish. And Boaz means in him is strength. So taken together, the two pillars that support the entryway into the house of God mean that it's the Lord who will establish his house in the earth. And it's the Lord that we that, that provides the strength for all of the service that will ever take place in the context of his house. And of course, all of this ultimately pointing forward to the work of Christ, the saving work of Christ in establishing the church, which Paul and Peter tell us 
are a representation of a new covenant and greater spiritual temple. All right, so that brings us to the end of our time for our uh, study in uh, Christ in the Old Testament structures. Eventually, when it's my next rotation to teach uh, from this series, we'll pick uh, the third of our seven segments of uh, Christ being represented in various Old Covenant aspects. And I'll look forward to uh, uh, seeing you back for that when we eventually get there. God bless you. Tim? Yes. Um, so the, the high priest is only going in one time a year. But on the Into the innermost room. He had daily... Yes, but he wasn't doing the offerings. Uh, his job on a daily basis was to go into the holy place.